Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous together. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honeycomb dripping, honey dripping out of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep your keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word. Invite you to make your way back to Psalm 19. If you're not still there, we're going to be looking at this together this morning. And as you're finding your way there, let's pray once more and ask the Lord to meet us. Lord, we have sung several times this morning about the beauty and power and quality of your word. And now we turn our hearts to look at it and pray that you would show yourself to us in it. Because, Lord, we recognize that whatever attributes we ascribe to your word are simply a reflection of what is true of you, Lord. You are a God who is good and who is true and righteous and holy. And so let us hear from your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In his excellent little book uh, entitled, Can I Really Trust the Bible?, uh, an author named Barry Cooper encourages us to approach the Bible the way that Winnie the Pooh approaches a jar of honey. So you can picture the familiar scene. If you've read the books or watched the cartoons, Pooh discovers this jar and wants to be sure what's actually inside. 
It had honey written on it. But just to make sure, he took the paper cover off and looked at it. And it looked just like honey. But you never can tell, said Pooh. I remember my uncle saying once that he had seen cheese just this color. So he put his tongue in and took a large lick. Yes, he said, it is, no doubt about that. As Cooper writes, uh, Pooh may have been a simple bear in profound danger of early onset diabetes, (laughs) but if we were to approach the Bible in the same way that he approaches honey, what would that look like? Something like this. Does the Bible claim to be God's word? What does it say on the outside of the jar? Does the Bible seem to be God's word? What does it look like when we take off the cover and peer inside? Does it look like something only God could have written? And, what, and does the Bible prove to be God's word? What does it actually taste like? Can we know in our own personal experience that the Bible really is God's word? Well, last week uh, we talked about what is on the outside of the jar, if you will, what the Bible says about the Bible in Second uh, Peter one sixteen to twenty one that it is nothing less than the very word of God. But of course, if you go to the store today, rare is the jar that just simply says the words "honey" on it. You know, is this grade A pure honey? Is this filtered or unfiltered? Uh, raw, organic with local pollens? What more can we say about the quality of God's Word. And that's what I want to do this morning, is to take a closer look, start by taking a closer look at the label, at what quality does the Bible tell us it has, uh, specifically in Psalm 19. Does it claim to be pure? Does it claim to be true? Does it claim to be good for us? And then I want to spend some time taking the cover off and looking inside. Does it seem to be God's word. Does, does what we see, do those claims seem to be true? Are there reasons to believe what it says about its quality? The tasting, however, I ultimately have to leave to you. That's something every single one of us has to do for themselves, to taste and see, do the claims of Scripture really ring true in our experience? And so let's take a closer look at Psalm 19. Uh, Again, that's page 456 in your pew Bible. And this psalm is ultimately, I think I'm getting a little funny feedback there. This psalm is ultimately about true worship. This is a psalm about pure worship. We are told in the superscript, which is the little small print just above verse 1, that this is a psalm of David. David, of course, is the the great uh, king of Israel. Uh, the model king in so many ways and not so much in other ways. But David's aim here, in, according to this psalm, the main thing that he's writing about is pure worship, true worship of God. And we can see that if we kind of work backwards through the psalm. So verse 14, you, you see his goal and his desire at the very end in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
So if you think about that, that's language of worship. What David wants to do is to have his words and his heart offered up to God in an acceptable way. He wants to worship the Lord. But to do that, keeping working backwards, to do that, he knows that his heart needs some work. And so verses 12 to 13, he asks God to vindicate him from hidden faults and to guard him from presumptuous sins, to protect him from rebellion. He wants to worship God, his Redeemer, with integrity of heart, integrity of speech. And what motivates him to want to do that, if you keep working your way backwards some more, what motivates his desire for this kind of pure worship of God, a worship that's acceptable in his sight, are two things. First, the worship and witness of creation in verses 1 through 6. And second, the perfection of God's word in verses 7 through 11. Those are the two things that move David to want to offer acceptable worship to God. And both of those things, the, the world and the word, tell us something about who God is and what it means to worship him. And so if you look briefly at the first six verses, the first section of his psalm, the worship and witness of creation, what we see as one author describes it is the heavens doing what the congregation does in its praise. That's a picture of worship. Look at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's worship. The, the heavens, the creation, is doing what we just did together in our singing. We described and declared who God is and what he's done. And in praising God, the creation at the same time bears witness to God. It, it tells us something about who he is. It makes God known. Verse 2, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So in its praise of God, in its worship, it's also bearing witness. It's telling us something about who God is, not using the kind of words we're used to. Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. But it is revealing God's glory and majesty, and it's doing so to the very ends of the earth. Verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And then David gives a specific example of how the creation worships and bears witness to who God is by describing the majesty and the power of the sun. So if you look at the middle of verse 4, in them, in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. So David pictures the sunrise here like a a groom bursting forth from his bedroom the morning after his wedding, ready to run a victory lap around the earth. That's the glory and majesty of the sun. And it's so unmistakably glorious that, that if you look across history, cultures and civilizations throughout history have worshipped the sun as though it were a god. It's, it's you know, unmistakably beautiful. But what we learn here is that, yes, it's glorious, yes, it's beautiful, but the testimony of the Son is not to its own power and worthiness, but to the power and worthiness of the one who made it. 
God's creation by being what he made it to be and doing what he made it to do gives praise to God and points us to his glory. Every time you go for a hike outside or sit on the beach and you're overtaken by the beauty and grandeur of what you see, the goal is not to move your heart to worship what you see, but the God who made what you see. And we we know, we learn something about this God through what he has made. So much that according to the Apostle Paul in Romans, every atheist is ultimately without excuse because you can't deny what you see before your eyes. But here's David's point. If the creation is able to recognize God's glory and worship him, then we ought to be able to recognize God's glory and worship him as well. But to do that, we need more information. We can tell a lot from nature. We can tell, you know, through its beauty and its grandeur, through the very existence of it, that some sort of God exists, that this had to come from somewhere. It's, it's too complex to just kind of pop into existence and actually work really well together, as much as, you know, secular science tries to convince itself of otherwise. But, but to know this God in a specific way, in a true and reliable way, he needs to make himself known to us in a specific way. We need more information than just what we can tell by looking outside the window to know just who this God is. And that is how God has made himself known through the scriptures. That's what he's done, according to David here. And that's what he turns his attention to in verses 7 through 11. And here's where we kind of get, we get to read the label in more detail and figure out just what kind of word of God the Bible claims to be. Verses 7 through 11. So look at verses 7 and 9 specifically, and, and notice first how artistically structured these verses are. Each line begins with some reference to God's word, his law, his testimonies, precepts, commandment, rules, and then each line tells us something of the quality of that word. It is perfect, sure, right, pure, true, altogether righteous. We'll look at those qualities more closely in a second. And then we see something of the power or impact of God's word. This word that is sure and pure and perfect revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. So you think about that, that contrast. The sun that, that nothing can escape its heat gives light to the earth. God's word gives light to our hearts to reveal to us who God is, what he's done, what he asks of his people on this earth. God's word is what makes the kind of worship that David wants to give God possible. Verse 11, moreover, by them, these commandments, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. He, he finds in God's word what not to do and what to do. He knows how to worship God according to the scriptures. For this reason, verse tells us that the verse 10 tells us that the words in this book, the words in this book are more valuable than all of the gold in Fort Knox and sweeter than any honeypot that Winnie the Pooh ever discovered. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey 
and drippings of the honeycomb. So according to Psalm 19, true worship is possible. You can truly know God and give Him the glory He deserves, offering words and hearts acceptable in His sight because this book is the Word of God. Because its words are true and pure and trustworthy and reliable. It is 100% pure, grade A gospel. That's what we have in the Scriptures. If you look again at the qualities on the label, verses 7 to 9 again, the law of the Lord is perfect. That's a big claim. It's a really big claim. It means it is without blemish. It is free from all defect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It is dependable. It's reliable. The precepts of the Lord are right. They are upright and full of integrity. They're not going to lie to you. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It is clean and unspoiled. The rules of the Lord are true. They are trustworthy and dependable, altogether righteous. They can never lead anyone astray. This is what the Bible tells us about its quality. This is the book that we have in front of us. It's reliable, it's trustworthy, it's without error. We sometimes call this the doctrine of inerrancy or infallibility, if you want to throw a theological label on there. As Barry Cooper puts it, it's the idea that the Bible is completely truthful in everything that it says, whether it speaks of geographical, historical, or theological details, it is trustworthy. St. Augustine put it this way in the 4th century. It is from those books alone of the Scriptures, which are now called canonical, that I have learned to pay them such honor and respect as to believe most firmly that not one of Scripture's authors has erred in writing anything at all. I do not find anything in those, if, excuse me, if I do find anything in those books that seems contrary to truth, I decide either that the text is corrupt, that somebody made a mistake copying it, or that the translator did not follow what was really said, or that I failed to understand it. So, so the Bible is God's word, and it is trustworthy and true. That's what the label tells us. That's what it says on the jar. But just because a label says something doesn't mean it's always true, right? There is such a thing as false advertising. And you see that quite a bit today. And so, so we should follow the wisdom of Pooh Bear and take the next step and, and not just look at the outside of the jar, but to take the lid off and look inside and say, does this seem like God's Word? Does this look like something only God could have written? And there, are there good reasons to believe what the Bible says about its trustworthiness and reliability. And what I want to do here is offer four questions to help us weigh that, to help us weigh the reliability of the Bible, the claim that this book is God's Word and that it is trustworthy and true. So first is the question of possibility. Could God do this? Could God actually speak in a way uh, that is truthful and reliable? Is it possible? Second is the question of plausibility. Would God do something like that? Third, the question of necessity. Should God do that? 
And then fourth, the question of history. Did God actually do that? Four questions that I hope will help us take a look inside and see, does this book seem to be the kind of thing only God would have written? So the first question is pretty simple. Question of possibility. Could God do this? If God exists, could he have the power and authority and the wisdom to communicate to his people by working through you know, human authors to write these books so that what they're writing is exactly what he wants to say to his people? Could God do something like that if he exists? Could he speak truthfully? And could he be powerful enough to to preserve and protect that message as it's copied and translated over centuries to ensure that what he says is what the Bible says. Is something like that possible? The obvious answer is, of course it is. If, if, if God is anything like what we read about in the Scripture in terms of power and wisdom and goodness, of course he could do something like that if he wanted to. So it's certainly possible. Number two, is it plausible, though? Would God do something like this? Would making himself known through written words fit his character? Is it plausible? Would there be a good reason for him to do it? For instance, it's possible that Captain America could be a secret Hydra agent. But it's not very plausible given what you know about his character and his track record, which is why Marvel has made a terrible mistake recently and changing the direction of their comic books. But that's a separate <laughs> sermon altogether. So, so is it plausible? Does it fit God's character to reveal himself through written words? Well, if God's character is love, it would be hard to imagine him creating a people to share that love with and not telling them about it. Right? If God is merciful... And he wants to help us in our weakness when we mess up or when life falls apart. It wouldn't be very merciful if he didn't let us know that that help was available. And if God is righteous, then it's natural to expect that when he speaks, he tells the truth. If a righteous God speaks, we should expect his word to share in that righteous character. And so if I can say that God is without error... I should expect the Bible to be without error as well. This is plausible. It makes sense that if God exists, he not only could reveal himself, but he would want to reveal himself to his people. Revelation is plausible. Okay, so number three, the test of necessity. Should God do something like this? He could, and he probably would, but... but does he have to? My revelation might be consistent with his character, but is it necessary for his plan? Or is there some other way that he could have accomplished uh, his purposes without making himself known reliably to his people? Well, the answer there, I think, is pretty clear that, that not if his goal is to actually have relationship with his people. Then you have to make yourself known. Relationship, real relationship involves a true knowledge of the other. So if God's plan involves a desire to make himself known to, his, uh, to have relationship with his people, he can't do that without making himself known somehow. So revelation is necessary. And all the more so if 
left to ourselves, we are actually unable to discover or figure God out on our own, which also happens to be the case. God is infinite. We are not. We are finite. We are very limited. And more than that, we are fallen. That means our sin messes up the way that we think sometimes. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians, that apart from Christ, we are darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to the hardness of our hearts. And so the only way that we can actually have relationship with God and give him the glory he deserves, this kind of worship that David wants to give, the only way that his plan for this fallen world can be accomplished is if he makes himself known to us in truth. Specifically, the truth of the gospel. That he did not leave us in our ignorance to kind of fix ourselves or figure it out or or find our own way, but sent his only son to take our place, to take on himself all of our errors, all of our mistakes, all of our rebellious sins, to pay for those completely through his sacrifice, and then to give new life to everyone who believes in him through his resurrection from the dead. That is a God who is righteous and loving and merciful, who has made himself known in truth, and apart from him doing that, his plans could not be accomplished. It was necessary for God to reveal himself reliably. And so test number four the test of history. So did God actually do that? He could, he would, he should, but did he? Are there reasons to believe that this has actually happened in history, that God has spoken through the Bible and that we can have confidence that it is truthful and trustworthy? Is there any evidence and to wrestle through this, it's, it's helpful to think in terms of what we might call external evidence and internal evidence. So internal dealing, obviously, with what's inside the Bible, and external dealing with the world around and outside the Bible. Are, are there reasons to believe the truthfulness of it based on those two things? And we'll think first about internal evidence. Are there reasons within the Bible itself to see this as the true word of God. And what we're looking for here is what we call coherence. Coherence. Does it hold together? Uh, Does it fit? Or is it filled with inconsistencies and contradictions, as is often claimed? The only real way to test this is for you to spend time reading the Bible yourself. You can read any number of blogs saying any number of things, and But the only real way to test it is to read it yourself and see. But here's one important consideration to get you started in that. Consider how the whole Bible works together to tell one big story. Think about that for a minute. So if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia or Anne of Green Gables or Harry Potter or some sort of multi-volume narrative... If someone were to tell you, you know, Chronicles of Narnia, for instance, if someone was to come and tell you that that the Chronicles of Narnia were written by seven 
different authors who never met each other over the span of several hundred years. Would you be convinced of that suggestion? No, not if you've read them. Well, why not? Because they fit too well together. I mean, you can tell the same voice is speaking in each volume. You've got the same characters playing a central role throughout. You have details introduced in one volume that, that really make no sense until you get to a later volume, and it's like, oh, you couldn't have seen where that was going. The, the time in the silver chair when they run into Father Time sleeping underground, it's like, that's awkward. What's that doing there? No clue. Until you get to the last battle, and it's like, oh, I get it now. And, and so the, you, as you read those, you see this kind of coherence. The story holds together and suggests that, that it's therefore written by one author who was weaving in these details as he goes because he knew where the story was going all along. And nobody else could have ever guessed that but the author. Well, you think about the Bible. So we have a book that within it is 66 books we know is written by at least 40 different authors over 1,500 years in three languages in all variety of literary styles. You have poetry and narrative and prophecy and apocalyptic, the wild and woolly stuff in Revelation. And yet this whole thing works together to tell one big, coherent story. The story of God's plan for creation, how it was corrupted through the fall, how it is being redeemed through a promise to Abraham, a covenant with Israel, a pledge to David, all of which is fulfilled in Christ and proclaimed to all nations through the church and finds its glorious realization when Christ returns in the end. It's one coherent story. And if you're not convinced of that, here's your homework. This afternoon, get your coffee out or your iced tea or whatever and sit down and read Genesis 1 through 3 and Revelation 20 through 22 and get a notebook out and write down all of the comparisons and parallels and contrasts that you see between the first three chapters of the Bible and the last three chapters of the Bible. It is breathtaking to see how intricately woven the story is together, that, that the problems introduced in the beginning are finally dealt with in the last few chapters. The characters introduced show up here. What God began, He finishes. And, and keep in mind, there's... 1,500 years and 40 authors in between those two passages. How can it be so coherent? Because there's one divine author over it all, working it all together, who knew where the story was going all along, and who was able to weave in these details because he knew how he was going to bring it together. There's a coherence to the Bible's story. So that's one way we evaluate, did God really do this in history? We look at internal evidence. The second uh, is external evidence. What about the world around the Bible? Is there reasons to believe its truthfulness based on that? And here we're talking about corroboration. In other words, you think of a courtroom. When you, when you have a witness who takes the stand, their testimony is either going to corroborate and, and, and verify the credibility of, of what this person said, or it's going to critique it and, and contradict it. So what is history? What does the ancient world do when it comes to the Bible? 
And you can think about that in several different ways. You can think about archaeological evidence. Uh, you know, it's interesting that in several hundred years of archaeological work, there are no discoveries that have caused major reasons to doubt the truthfulness of the Bible. There are questions and puzzles and, and, and things that we need to be honest and, and wrestling with. But keep in mind that with archaeology, the absence of evidence is not the same thing as evidence for absence, if, you make, if that makes sense. So just because, for instance, we haven't found evidence that Jericho was destroyed around the time we think uh, Joshua 6 would have happened, just because we haven't found evidence of it doesn't mean that that proves it didn't happen. It simply means we can't prove that it happened. And that's a pretty big difference. So, for instance, uh, in the 18, late 1800s, uh, scholarship was pretty uh, proud of themselves for having disproved the reliability of the Old Testament because the Old Testament kept mentioning a people group called the Hittites. And there was no evidence that such a people group ever existed. And so it was kind of this blemish on biblical studies until they discovered the Hittites. And today you can get a PhD in Hittitology at the University of Chicago. There's so much evidence now. And so the evidence of absence is not the same thing as absent, whatever I said the first time. So, so there's, 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 you know, not great reasons to question. I mean, again, wrestle honestly. Don't just stick your head in the sand when you come across a problem. Don't be afraid to wrestle honestly with it. But the overwhelming weight of archaeological evidence is in favor of the truthfulness of Scripture. Uh, for instance, little things like we know David really existed in history because we have a non-Israelite inscription from the mid-9th century B.C. that mentions the house of David by name, talking about Israel. That's like less than half a century away from David, when David lived, and we've got an inscription that has his name on it. That's pretty amazing. Or, for instance, we know that 2 Kings 20.20, 20, uh, that what it says is true. The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And that's talking about this event when the king of Assyria was besieging Jerusalem and Hezekiah had his people put a cover over the spring outside the city and bore a tunnel underneath the city so that he could get water into the city so that they couldn't be cut off and starved. In 1880, they discovered that tunnel. You can go to Jerusalem and walk that tunnel today and see the inscription they made on the inside telling the story of how they made it. It's amazing. So, so there's a lot of reasons um, that archaeological evidence helps us with the truthfulness of Scripture. And there's other things you can think about. You can think about manuscripts. You know, uh, how, how, how sure can we be that the manuscripts we have are actually reflective of what was originally written, which we don't have the original documents. Uh, the New Testament is unlike any other ancient document with regard to the historical substantiation of the manuscripts that we have. 5,800 New Testament manuscripts. The earliest ones date less than 50 years from the time of writing. You compare that to any other ancient document, and you're looking at not 5,800, you're looking at a few hundred, and you're often looking at a thousand or more years between the manuscript's date and the time it was written. So it's completely unparalleled. 
or one, you know, that's the New Testament. The Old Testament, one of my favorite examples of the meticulous way that the Old Testament uh, was copied, um, the Hebrew manuscripts were copied and preserved, is there this little scribal notation in the margin of Leviticus 11.42. So if you pick up a Hebrew Bible and you look at Leviticus 11.42, you'll notice that the third letter in the fourth verse of that uh, of Leviticus 11.42, the third letter is enlarged. It's much bigger, the vav there. And it's kind of like, that's interesting. So you look over it, and there's a note in the margin that says, middle letter of Torah. Middle letter of Torah. So think about what that means. So if you're copying a manuscript of Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and you start counting, there's 400,945 letters in Torah. And you start counting from Genesis 1 on one side and Deuteronomy 34, 12 on the other. Your fingers should meet at the third letter of the fourth word of Leviticus eleven forty two, And if they don't, you throw it away and start over. That's the kind of meticulous care that went into preserving these Hebrew manuscripts. And so the external evidence, by and large, corroborates the reliability of Scripture. So you put all of this together. When you take the cover off and you look inside, does it seem to be something only God could have written? Does it look like the true and reliable word of God? I think there's good reason to think so. That this is something that God could, would, should, and actually did do. And that it's something that makes our true worship of him possible. What remains is for each of you to taste and see. To see for yourself. It says honey. It looks like honey. But your uncle once said that he'd seen cheese that same color. Does it taste like honey? Does it taste sweeter than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb? Taste God's word. And the only way to do that is to spend time reading it. This is the only way. You can't read a blog and figure that out or a commentary or anything. You've got to spend time. And I encourage you right now to make a commitment, whatever you think about the Bible, make a commitment that I'm going to spend 10 minutes every day reading God's Word to taste and see. You've got 1,440 minutes each day. You can give 10 of them to this. It's doable. To taste and see because it's in the reading of the Bible that we not only find that every word of God proves true, but that these words revive the soul and make wise the simple and rejoice the heart and enlighten the eyes because these words reveal to us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Reading the Bible is not just about information. It is ultimately about worship. It's about worship. Beholding our Savior in such a way that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of my heart become more and more and more acceptable in His sight. So taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, as we consider the marvel and mystery that that this book that we hold in our hands is nothing less than your very word. It's an inspired word and a reliable word. That is mind-blowing, Lord. And God, help us to wrestle deeply with that claim. Help us not shy away from our questions or doubts, but to face them, to wrestle with them, to not be ashamed of them. But help us, more than anything, to taste and see, to meet you in your word as you make yourself known to us. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and that you have not hidden yourself, but that you have made yourself known, and we long to know you more. So work in our hearts, God. Give us a love for your word. Give us a a trust in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.